Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Today on this bonus episode, I'm catching up with Vince Scully, and with answering your questions in relation to investing and shares. Okay, so Emma asks, It may have already been covered as I'm new to this podcast, but dividend versus non-dividend paying shares uh, would be interesting. So, there's we did touch on that, but basically, if you're a company... Um, Vince Scully Incorporated and you had a I don't know you were trying to find gold out the back of New South Wales and you were digging and digging and you were making some profit it wouldn't make sense to give your profit away it would make more sense to invest that back into your business so you could hopefully find more gold um, so is that a really bad example of no that's a, that's a, um, a good example <laughs> but I think from an investor perspective I think you've got to start with, well, why am I buying, why am I investing in this share? Do I need income today? So if I'm a 65-year-old retiree and I'm living off my pension, dividends are good. Is that like a year away for you? <laughs> it's a little bit more than <laughs> one. <laughs> You're listening to My Millennial Money. Where the only daddy issues we talk about are sugar daddy issues. Mm. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but getting back to Emma's problem, um, so if you want income, dividends are good. And in Australia, dividends have the advantage that they generally come with a tax credit. Yeah, and so, we might swing back around yeah, to... We'll come, um, come back to that later. Yeah. Um, but there's a few things you need to look at. If a company is not paying dividends because it's reinvesting and you think management is good, that's probably a good thing because you won't pay tax on the gain until you actually sell it. And if they're reinvesting, they're probably going to increase their future income. If, on the other hand, they're not paying dividends because they're not paying profits because their underlying business is terrible. That's an issue. Then that's something that you need to have a look at. So, yeah, companies like Amazon um, hardly ever pay dividends because they keep reinvesting it. But they've, they've got a really good track record at the moment yeah. for taking over the world. So far, so good. Yes. So why do you want to buy them is important. What are you looking for? Are you looking for long-term growth above inflation or are you looking for income? Uh, in many cases, most of the top 200 shares will give you a bit of both. Um, I think the average yield on the... Top two hundred shares is about five percent. And if we just um, for you know just for clarity, the yield is basically what the dividend is. It's the return as a percentage of yes. your purchase price. Yes. Yep. So talk to me. So you've you've covered you know I guess not paying a dividend. 
why would a company want to pay a dividend? So like the big banks in Australia, they have uh, good dividend growth. Um, why would a company pay dividends to the reward their investors? Your company will generally pay dividends uh, for a few reasons. Firstly, if they've got nothing better to do with the money. Sure. So I think if I was a CBA investor, I would much rather they give the money back to me because their track record of investing is not particularly good. But they've got a fun- fundamentally good underlying business. Yes. So that's good in the hands of a, an investor. Um, it's also because many of the big holders in bank shares are retirees. Right. I can't remember the percentage. Yes. But a very large proportion of retail investors, that is not investment companies, are older and are depending on their investment for income. So they find it attractive, and with the tax credit that comes with it, um, they find it even more attractive. And that tax credit comes, just to explain that, um, so let's say BHP makes $100 in profit. Let's make it $154 in profit. Yes. And it pays 30% tax. So it'll have $100 left, and it can pay a $100 dividend. Now, that $100 dividend comes with a credit for the $54 in tax that BHP has paid. So, And that's called a franking and credit? And called a franking credit. Yes. Um, franking for your millennial listeners yes. comes from the concept of a stamp, because when you used to pay tax, you used to stamp your... Um, Ta- tax receipt. Or- your, your receipt. So, and a franking machine was the thing that marked the stamp. So that's why it's called a franking credit. Um, so when you receive that, if you're a 30% taxpayer, you will, although you get 100 in cash, the tax office will say, actually, you've got $154 with a $54 credit, which means that on the $154, you'll be, need to pay tax of 54 and you get a credit of 54 Right. So no further tax is payable. Is it a messy system? No, it, it actually works quite well. I mean, yep. there is a timing difference, but yep. but when you go to fill out your tax return, if you do it online using MyGov, mm. it's usually pre-filled. From your tax, everything being linked from yep. your tax file number. Yeah, because yep. BHP report to the tax office saying, well, we paid... Glenn James. Glenn James $100. Yes. And of that, $54 was a franking credit. Yes. So it will turn up when you go to do your tax return online. Um, if you have a lot of shares, though, it can become a bit messy. Yep. And that's where an accountant or a financial advisor or a wrap account will, will come in handy. So that's a really good thing just to work through. And you might notice that the speed and the style of this little interview might not be like our usual episodes, but we just want to be very considered and measured and walk through these things because, you know, if you if you don't know anything about shares or dividends or investing, um, it's all new to you. We're going to answer, so Vince and I just answered Emma's question, which is, it may already have been covered as I'm new to this podcast, but dividends versus non-dividend paying shares will be interesting. Um, Part two of that question is about the dividend imputation um, and the taxation on um, dividends for retirees and the labor policy. Vince and I went down a 10, 15 minute rabbit hole. So we're going to put that in at the very end of the episode if you want that, so... Taylor asks, what are the pros or the cons of dividend reinvestment? Mm. 
Lots well, let's well, let, let's start and explain. We don't want to assume. Yep. What is dividend reinvestment? A good question, Taylor. Um, hold that up. The, um, the concept being that when you were entitled to a dividend, you would ordinarily get it in cash or by deposit to your bank account. Or check. <laughs> or check in as it used to be. Um, and a dividend reinvestment plan allows you to tick a box and say, don't give me the cash, give me more shares, shares instead. And traditionally, that usually came with a discount. So usually it says, well, give me shares at... Instead of being $5 a share, you might be able to reinvest at $4.80. Yeah. And it also saves you paying brokerage. So you don't pay Comsec $19.95 for that purchase. So building up for long-term investors, building up um, savings, it, it was very helpful. Um, the downside is that you're still going to get taxed on the dividend, even though you haven't actually got it in cash. So you need to make sure that you've got cash set so it's, aside. It's to, deemed income. It is. It is income. Yep. You've just received it as a not money, but as in a as share. A, as a share. Yep. So you'll still have to pay tax on it. So you'll need to make sure you have the cash when it comes tax time. The other downside is, and that just to get really technical, and we don't get that deep on this show. That dividend income wouldn't be treated as a capital sale. It would be treated as income straight onto your um, income section of your tax return. Yep. Yep. So the other disadvantage of it is that you're buying something or you're making a decision at one point in time to buy something at a time in the future. So when you tick that box, you're saying that I don't quite know what price BHP is going to trade at in six months' time when I get my dividend – or six years' time when I get my dividend, and I'm making a decision to buy it today. So you're buying something at a discount to the price, but you don't actually know what the price is going to be. And would you have made that decision at the time? Now, only history will tell you the right answer to that, mm. but it's a different decision than choosing to buy BHP today. So that could possibly be a con, yeah. as in not a pro, like a negative... Yeah. To dividend reinvestment. That's right. And then yep. the other con is um, it can create a lot of paperwork. So as yes. Glenn just noticed that this dividend is not counted as as a sale, it's counted as income, but it does get added into your cost of the shares for when it comes to working at your capital gain at the end of the day. And if you're doing this every six months or for some shares every three months and you do this for 10 years or 20 years that's or a, a lifetime, that's a, a lot of paperwork. And a nightmare. And trying to unpick this can be a huge problem and you may end up paying your accountant a lot of money if, you, if your paperwork's not straight. Mm, mm. So they're the two main disadvantages. Yeah. The big advantage, of course, is that out of sight, out of mind, you get a discount, you don't pay brokerage, and because you're paying your tax out of other money, you're actually forcing yourself to save more. It's forced savings. Yeah. Yep. So if you're confident in the shares you're holding, so for example, if you were going to hold a, a broad share fund like a um, Vanguard 
um, ETF, reinvesting might make a lot of sense. Sure. And for but that is a quarterly one. Yes. So you will create a lot of paperwork. Yep. And I guess we covered with Emma's questions, dividend versus non-paying dividend shares. And I guess to bookend, someone might take a dividend if they have retired from the workforce and they've got a substantial amount of shares and every six months, three months, they take that income and live off it. Yep. Um, broadly speaking, if you're in accumulation stage, you're still working, so you don't really need the income from the shares. So, yes, you might just throw it back in the market. Or, as a crazy strategy, you might have your cash account on Comsec or E-Trade, and your strategy might be all my shares, I pay the dividend into the cash account, and I buy other companies with that. Yeah, so, so, that, so that means you're making the decision at the time where based you're going on to what invest you know it. at the time. Yes. And you don't end up with um, a huge investment in... An overweight position yeah. in that stock. Yeah. Um, and most stockbrokers are overweight. However, the con of that, if you had $3,000 worth of dividends and you had to reinvest, you're paying brokerage, as you said. Correct. Um, so I guess it's... Everything is choose your own adventure. Fiona, she asks, one, are shares even worth it? Should I bother trying to invest? Where do I begin and who do I invest in? Lol. (laughs) (laughs) Two, is cryptocurrency dead and gone or is now a good time to invest before it picks up again? So, I guess... Mm, That's a... uh yeah. Quite a wide-ranging question. It is. I guess uh, we covered uh, where do I begin and, you know, what do I invest in probably in the last episode and we mentioned some ETFs if you were interested. Um, a share is even worth it. Well, I think it's a philosophical argument of I've got X amount of income in my life, I spend X amount and I'm left with Y. What do I do with the Y amount? Now, if I've got $1,000 left per month, I might decide, hey, Vince, I'm going to invest $500 in an account there because I want to save up to do a home renovation or a kitchen or, or whatever, a holiday. Or in uh, the other $500, I, do, I want to invest into the future. And it could be, what do I want to invest in? Do I want to buy an investment property and use that spare $500 a month to help with the upkeep of that? Do I want to contribute to super to make the... And I'd be more tax effective and put it away for the long term. Or do I have a 10-year short-term or five-year short-term goal that I do want to invest and I don't want that money parked in cash? Shares may be an option because they're liquid. Um, in, the, in the episode with Asher, we discussed what a liquid asset mm-hmm. and investment asset was. I think that was 204. Um, and it's not a barrel of beer. And it's not a barrel of beer. Um, so I guess... Are shares even worth it? Well, the overarching statement is history says absolutely. That's right. I mean, but, there's sort of five things you can invest in. Yeah. Uh, which is shares, real estate, bonds or IOUs, um, commodities or cash. And only two of those are capable of beating inflation long term, and that's shares and real estate. So... The real question... And I'll just jump in on that for a sec. When you say beat inflation, in other, epi- in other episodes we've talked about, you know, CPI and inflation. In actually the same episode with Asher, we did, we did a bit of a glossary of terms. So, for example, if um, 
I'll give you an example. If inflation is 2% per year and I've got cash in the bank earning 1.5%, the value of my cash is, strictly speaking, decreasing by half a percent every year. Whereas if I invest in a good growth company that is growing, you know, long-term average of 7%, last time I checked, 7% was higher than 2%. Really? I think so. I never claimed I was intelligent. Well, you must have paid attention in maths class. Yes. So, anyway, you were basically ranting about the five types. Yeah. So, if you're setting money aside to achieve a goal and that goal is more than a year or two away, you have the ability to make your pile bigger by investing. So effectively, the more return you can make on your money that you've set aside, the less of today's money you have to set aside to achieve tomorrow's goal. So investing is therefore, for any long-term goal, is critical. And I would say to most people, you know, that the trick to achieving those goals is to start investing, stay invested, and then invest some more. And that leaves you with the question, well, what do I invest in? Mm. And for long-term goals, yeah, seven years or more, uh, it really comes down to shares or real estate, or in most cases, a bit of both. And history will tell you that in Australia, over 20 or you know, long-term periods, 10, 20, 30 years, they sort of have the same return. Mm. And, yeah, uh, I'm not an advisor that gets caught up in shares only or property only. I just do both. Yeah. It's not an either or. No, it's, it's how much of each is the question. Yes. And um, So I guess to Fiona's point... Is yes is the answer. The shares yes, are, are worth, worth it. it. Should I bother trying to invest? Well, Absolutely. I would... Yeah. Well, first I would say I would bother getting your finances sorted so you know every single month how much you've got left over. Correct. After your living expenses, after your, I don't know annual girls weekend to Melbourne or whatever you do. I don't, you might be from Melbourne, but you know what I mean? Like just <laughs> well, how much- be a weekend in Dalesford, wouldn't it? Yeah. So I guess I would say, should you bother trying to invest? Absolutely. Once you know how much you've got left over at the end of every month. And once you've got a clear um, outline of what your financial goals are, and if you're in a partner relationship, what our collective goals are. So it's funny, the in financial planning and the stuff that we do every day, the shares, the investment, the do I do, it's super, non-super, all that stuff takes care of itself. The time is working. What are your goals, some uh, variables, and how do we get there? That's right. And yeah, this whole, the why am I doing this, the answer to that question will, in most cases, tell you what the answer is. And the rest is technical implementation. That's right. And I would, and the reason we harp on this so much, if you don't have clear goals, you'll invest your 10 grand or whatever in the share portfolio. Seven months later, oh, something came up. I've got to do this and I don't have the money for it. And you end up selling down. And one, it could have been at a, a reduced market rate. Mm-hmm. Um, two, it might not be. But there's no point investing in shares if you have any type of, if you if you're going to sell it within four years, I think. Yeah. So if 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 it's money that you plan on spending in the next year or two, 
cash is probably the only place for it. Yeah. It may not be glamorous, it may not be sexy, it may not have huge return, but it means that it's there and it's accessible. And if your goal is something that you're going to spend over the next year or two, that's the place for it. When we start to get to longer-term goals like you know, saving a deposit for a home, um, retirement, um, you know, those longer-term, so you know, seven years plus, you really need to be in these so-called growth assets, which mm. is shares or real estate. Yeah. In the middle between those two periods, it's a bit of a, well, it depends. And the it depends can largely be answered by how time critical is this goal? Mm. So if you can defer the goal because the market's not done what you thought it was going to do, then take advantage of the growth. If So if you're, say, saving to buy an investment property, you could defer that by a year if the market was down. If your goal is saving to send your kids to high school, um, they're not going to change the year they go into year seven just because the market's down. Exactly. So... That's why goal, goals are so important. Mm, mm. Uh, I guess I don't want to camp on the crypto thing, but I would say f- to me that sits in speculative at this climate. Mm-hmm. And I always tell my clients, uh, don't invest in any speculative stuff uh, of more than 10% of your net worth outside of your home value. Yep. Just as a... I treat it like buying a lotto ticket. Yeah. Yeah. Some people do win the lotto. They do. Some people make lots of money in crypto. Some don't. But some don't. Yeah. Um, I met a guy in the States. I think he got about well, over $3 million from crypto at the end of 2017. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> Georgie asks, uh, my boyfriend and I are in our mid-20s and are ready to buy a home, but we are also interested in shares. Should we, should we be concentrating on saving a larger deposit than paying off, then paying off as much as possible of the mortgage? or putting money into shares slash EFTs? Mid-20s. Yeah. While you think about that, I would probably say one thing. Um, Depending on what your income is, and chat with your mortgage broker, if you can get into a house um, within the next however long without paying lenders mortgage insurance, knock yourself out, buy a house, live in it, and enjoy life. Okay? That's number one. If... You have to pay a little bit of LMI to get into that house and it is a long-term home that you're going to live in together because I'm I'm assuming it is to, you say, a ready-to-buy-a-home rather than a property. So when people say home, I usually think to live in. Um, it's like my place, Vince. not a house, it's a home. That's right. You can <laughs> so, tell because the fruit bowl is empty. Yeah. It's I, like Julie Killard's kitchen. Yes, exactly. Um, so what I would probably say is, from a personal finance point of view, just focus on one thing at a time and that's a big goal. Um, get in the home, get settled. You might decide when you buy the house that, oh, crap, we need a, we want a pergola out the back that costs two grand, you know, do that and then maybe swing back around a year later or six months depending on how you, once your budget has resettled, once you've in your new home, adjusted to rates and mortgage repayments and all that, then swing back to what we start started with like how much have we got left over per month and what do we do with it it might be then investing and then you know it, it could be we're going to pay down a little bit more on the mortgage or we're going to pay into an eft or we're just going to do shares on the side or cap out super first i don't know 
Yeah, um, the one point I would make is... And Vince is probably going to have a better answer than me, so... No, I think I agree with a fair bit of that, Glenn. <laughs> but the point I was about to make was that um, it's a bit misleading to think of your home as an investment. Um, and I know that's controversial, but your home is really a hedge against future rent increases. And because there's a whole bunch of expenses involved in getting in, um, you need to be there for a long period to come out ahead. And those costs are about, you know, stamp duty, legal fees, agents' fees, lawyers' fees, inspections, a whole bunch of costs. So, but over a long enough period, you will almost always spend less if you buy rather than rent. Now, the big unknown is how long that period is. Mm. And if you think you're going to have to move in the next five years, either because you want to move cities or you're single now and you want to move in with a partner at some point or you're buying a one-bedroom unit and you think you might have some kids, then you need to take that period into account. Mm. Um, and the big thing is to make sure that the home that you buy is not too much home. Mm. So I always advise people to buy real estate, not too much, when the time is right for you. Yes. And as you're becoming a more settled couple from your question, yeah, now might very well be the right time. So I guess to really break this down, should we be concentrating on saving a larger deposit and paying off as much of our mortgage as possible or putting money into shares EFTs? I would probably say rule number one, we're not putting any money into shares EFTs until you've got into the home and have settled the budget, which... Yeah, I mean, knowing what this monthly surplus is, is critical to all of these things. Yeah. And, you know, one of the biggest destroyer of wealth that I see is people buying too much home. Yeah. So how much of your income you spend on your home affects critically what's left to spend on other things. Yes. And those other things are you know, obviously living, so buying you one coffee, uh, having a holiday, sending your kids to after school activities and saving for goals. Mm. Whatever and- those goals might be. And the first part, um, you know, you want a large deposit as possible. I mean, if you find the perfect home and the mortgage broker says, yeah, you're good to go, but it's going to cost three grand of um, lender's mortgage insurance, you might just, yeah, we'll take that as opposed to going, oh, we're just going to wait and save another 10 grand so I don't have to pay the $3,000 mortgage insurance and then we might not find the home. I would be in favor of just getting the right home at the right time uh, for you, so that, that's right. The two. I just want to. Um, I just because these things are kind of broke. Um, the question is kind of put all in one. I just want to really yeah. split it out and go. Don't worry about any type of investing until you've settled the budget and you've got your home, and then get into a home as soon as you're ready. Yes. That just unpicking that slightly. Yes. Um, for many people, the 
stability needed to buy a home in terms of, am I going to be living in this location with this requirement for accommodation for the next five or more years may not be clear until you know, some years have passed, in which case you should be investing your surplus in the meantime. But once you've made the decision that now is the right time to buy a home, um, maximising your deposit is a generally a good thing because of this thing called lender's mortgage insurance. I wouldn't sort of demonise it too much that in many ways paying a bit of lender's mortgage insurance is not the end of the world because, as Glenn noted, it could actually take you longer to save the extra money. And there could be some opportunity costs and, pro- cost and, and property, lifestyle costs. And property costs prices and, could go up in the meantime. Yeah. So in a rising market, a bit of LMI is not the end of the world. I paid fifteen grand of LMI when I got my place, and within three years it was worth three hundred grand more. Yeah. So would I have rather waited? I don't even need to answer that. Yeah. But I just want to. But, but, but sorry, just yep. finishing off on that. But if you're paying mortgage insurance because you've got a few thousand dollars sitting in shares or ETFs, the cost of the LMI might very well outweigh the return you're going to make on those shares. Absolutely. So it will depend on the circumstances at the time. But um, in general, um, yeah, buy the right amount of house and make sure it fits your budget. In many ways, you know, and don't have more than 30% of the household net take home in rent or mortgage repayments. 25% is ideal. Yeah. 20 is freaking amazing. Yeah. 0% is amazing because it <laughs> means you own the place. <laughs> <laughs> or you live with mum and dad. <laughs> you live with mum and dad. Um, and just following on for that, and, and all these things, like don't take this as gospel financial advice because we don't actually know all the details. It's just a really good discussion. So um, Jane asks, maximizing my savings and investing in the right EFTs so when it comes to liquidating them for a home deposit, I've no I've done my best. So I guess conversely, uh, it's the opposite end of Georgie. Um, Jane might be on the starting blocks of saving for a house. Um, absolutely, you know, we talked about the Vanguard um, funds mm-hmm. in the ETF episode and the share episode. For example, they're liquid. You can get the money out within three days. So what I would probably do as a strategy if you did go down the road of hey i probably it's realistically going to take four years to save uh my home deposit um and just a side note vince there's not many couples particularly in the areas you know a couple of hours of sydney that are and probably melbourne and brisbane to a point that are buying their first home under 30 years old so yeah i think the average age is now 31 yeah so I would recommend, one, just chill out if you're under 30 and you don't own a home because it's pretty normal. And two, if it is a four-year journey away and you did invest into EFTs, um, what you might do is if you're, it looks like you're a year away from, you know, withdraw. So I'll, I'll, I'll work this way. You're saving towards a $50,000 deposit wherever you are, okay? You want to buy a little townhouse, it's whatever. If, for example... In parts of Sydney, that's called a stamp duty bill. Exactly. So I'm talking about regional areas as an example because we've got listeners all over Australia. So so if you if your goal is $50,000 and you've got a four-year plan to get there, at the end of year three, if you think or if the market is not great, for the last year, 
you might just save cash mm. and not invest. Yeah. And then so in the end of the year four, you might have $40,000 in shares and 10 in cash. And then it can be a sell down process. So I guess what's her question here? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a problem. Uh, although I would probably look at capping out the uh, first home super saver scheme. Yeah, I mean, I think first that should be your first port, port of call, call yep. when you're saving money up to the limit, uh, which I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. It's, uh, we did an episode yeah, on this. Yeah, we did. 30 grand over three years, capped at 15 so, so, grand so, a year. Yeah, so I'd start by capping that out. So if you're setting money aside... That could be wrong as well, but we just... But if you're setting money aside to buy a home um, and you're otherwise not maxing your super ad, then that's the first port of call. Yeah. As long as you're confident that that's what it's going to be used for. Yes. And, of course, super is just a structure. So the question is, well, I'm putting into my super, but what I'm actually going to invest it in. Mm. Um, and your, your points about shares and ETFs are just as applicable inside super. Yes. Uh, but the key point is, yeah, am I setting aside a, enough to achieve my goal within my time frame? Yep. And part of that is what do I think I can earn in this money in the meantime? Yep. And I guess in closing, because you're probably late to your little... It is just around the corner. Yep. Um, My recommendation, for want of a better word, or suggestion is probably a nicer word, um, would... Because I can only say kind of what I do, and I don't do single stocks. So I don't have a Comsec or E-Trade account that I buy BHP and Telstra and trading and all that. Uh, Because one... I, there's actually, I'll, t- I'll tell you number one, if you Google um, trading is hazardous to your wealth, uh, the common stock investment performance of individual investors, it was a guy from the University of Berkeley and there's a report that they did where basically people who just buy an index fund and leave it and add to it outdo people who constantly buy and sell shares. Yeah, I think that that's true that most people um, don't have the, psychological bent to do this consistently. Yes. That the problem with share investing for many people is that the higher the um, stock market goes, the more people want to invest. So the average investor ends up buying when it's high and selling when it's low, which is the exact opposite of what you should be doing. So the advantage of buying an, a... Um, a basket of shares, be it a whether it's a, a managed, managed fund, fund or an index fund, or, or, or yeah, listed investment company or whatever, as opposed to single ones, is it removes some of this temptation. Yes. Now I will say, back to the rule, I tell my clients, hey, if you want to have a little e trade account or whatever just for fun or your own little thing, again, not more than ten percent of your net worth outside of your home. Because there's less risk. We're just yep. with all this speculative fun stuff or crypto or whatever. If you keep it to a rule, ten percent of your net worth, you can't go too far wrong. You like it's not going to blow up your life. That's right. Um, so the advantage of a basket set is the temptation to move in and out is reduced. And if there's you're looking more at diversification, a basket, more diversification, and the administrative. Administrative costs are lower. And the year. And, and the advantage, if you're going to pick a basket, um, picking an index basket, that is a basket where you're not paying a fund manager to trade, probably reduces your costs 
um, and will in many cases yield a, a more stable return. Yep. All right, Vince, thank you so much for joining us on this extended little bonus deep dive into shares. Thanks, Dan. Good to be um, here. That was great. Oh, just Vince has got a cool website, lifesherpa.com.au. Come and check us out. Yeah. And um, thank you. Cheers, Dan. Bye. Remember, we hang out on Insta at My Millennial Money. If you're a regular listener, you're welcome to join our Facebook group. If you want more money hacks, be sure to subscribe to My Millennial Money Express. It's short money hacks anywhere, anytime, right into your ears. Any advice in this podcast is of a general nature only and has not been tailored to your personal circumstances. Please seek personal advice prior to acting on this information. Before making a decision to acquire a financial product, you should obtain and read the product disclosure statement relating to that product. Opinions constitute our judgment at the time of issue and are subject to change. Neither the licensee, any of the National Australia Group of Companies, nor their employees or directors give any warranty of accuracy nor accept any responsibility for errors or omissions in this podcast. Glenn James, Urban Getter, Proprietary Limited, trading to sort your money out, are authorised representatives of Apogee Financial Planning Limited, AFSL 230689. Now, while we're in this um, rabbit hole of um, franking credits and dividends... What? Why is it advantageous to retirees? Well, it comes back to the fact that this tax has been paid at 30%. And most retirees either pay, well, to the most part, they pay low tax. If, if so, a super fund, that is a pension, is tax-free. Yes. Um, so in the, for the most part, retirees are not paying tax at 30% or more. It might even be 0%. It, in many cases, it's zero. And so they actually get cash back for this franking credit. From the ATO. From the ATO. So going back to my $100 BHP example, a retiree receiving the $100 dividend, deemed income 154 tax credit 54 cash 100 they do their tax return and... Because their tax rate zero. Because their tax rate is zero, they will now get $54 back from, from the, the government. government. Which is a bit of a quirk, really. And um, the Labor Party's got a proposal to abolish this at the moment, which would put us back to the pre-2000 position. So, another history lesson from the old bloke in the corner here. Mm-hmm. Um, back He's literally <laughs> sitting in a corner. <laughs> so, we go back to the 80s um, when... Paul Keating was treasurer and Bob Hawke was... He's the prime old minister. guy that you see once a year at the cricket sculling <laughs> a beer still. That's right. And I must admit, at his age, he does it better than I've ever been able to do it. Mm. Um, so Paul Keating's proposal when he brought in this whole franking system or imputation system was say, well, companies pay tax at 30%. Why should we tax it again when they pay as a dividend? Because it's really stopping double taxation. Yeah. The the goal was to stop double tax. So previously... So Paul Keating being a Labor government, his party at the moment, the Labor government, are saying, no, we want to go back and double tax people. And Well, no. They're going back to the pre-2000 position. So we follow sure. this story. So, yeah. so Keating said, um, BHP's already paid tax on this. 
So when you receive it, you shouldn't pay tax again. So we'll give you a credit for the tax that's already been paid. And then, so in, so between 1987 and 2001, our case... Which is basically when all the millennials were born. <laughs> um, our retiree receiving that $100 dividend would not have any tax, so they, but they wouldn't get a rebate. Sure. And that's saying that actually companies pay tax at 30%. Yep. And the fact that you pay tax at least, we, we want to stop you being double taxed, but we're not trying to turn the company tax into just a withholding tax. Sure. So it's saying that companies pay tax at 30% and a recipient of that dividend shouldn't have to pay the 30% again. Mm-hmm. It wasn't intended to say, well, look, if you're not a taxpayer, you shouldn't get anything. Now, yeah, you can, you now 2001, I think, the one of the Costello budgets, they were trying to fix up a whole bunch of technical issues around div, uh, dividend imputation or franking, which is probably way too complicated to go into. But a consequence of that was they brought in this fact that now if you didn't owe the tax, you got a cashback. And what that means, that effectively turns company tax into a withholding tax so that you pay tax at the lowest level along the chain rather than simply saying companies should pay tax at 30%. And now, um, as the number of retirees has got so big, this is now a very large number. Mm, mm. In fact, it's, as Bill Shorten will say, it's more than we spend on public schools, which is a bit of a, a fair fee, but it's a big number nonetheless. And... Um, they're now sort of looking at this. And it's a unique worldwide position. No no other economy does this. And it seems a is technically a bad answer. So the shorten Bowen proposal is to abolish the rebate. So everyone still gets the benefit. You just don't get cash if you don't want to use it. Okay, so that if, if I earned $5,000 a year, which of my effective tax rate zero mm-hmm. and spent a thousand dollars there's no offset anyway correct you get you reduce your taxable income by the thousand dollars you spend but it doesn't matter because my but tax it doesn't rate affect zero. your tax because you're still zero so basically in retirement land if my tax rate zero and i receive a dividend that's already had 30 percent tax paid my tax rate zero who cares anyway you're still getting the money the dividend. Correct. So I guess what I'm saying is you won't be double taxed. Correct. However, you will not get a tax refund just because. Correct. Because so, your tax so, rate zero. So compared to today, every retiree in receipt of a franc dividend will be worse off than they are today. But they will be no worse off than they were between ninety seven and or eighty seven and two thousand. And I didn't hear anyone complaining, oh, look, I've got this extra income in 2000 after mm. 2000 budget. See, it's funny, this whole thing, because... So nobody complains when you reduce the tax and everyone complains when you increase the tax. But in this dividend imputation tax withholding thing, mm-hmm. there's no double taxing. Correct. We're just closing a, a hole that will just give you a cash bonus correct yeah 
Now, I guess what I want to say is my only concern is in financial planning land, we put strategies in place based on the law of the day. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a retiree may set up an investment company and buy shares in the company and effectively um, pay a fully frank dividend to themselves. And then when they stop working, they can get a tax rebate from their own company the same way. Yep. Well, not a tax rebate, a literally cash back from the government. So that's in jeopardy. It is, but these things happen all the time. In many cases, uh, you may have heard the term grandfathering, where when things change adversely, they say, well, look, if you've already done this, we'll... So, okay. Like, for capital gains tax was a good example. Yes. 1986, 7? I was... uh, 87, I think. Um, I was three years old. When capital gains tax was brought in... They said, well, look, if you've already owned an asset before August something in that year, it, this whole new regime won't apply to it. Um, and that was a sort of a simple thing to administer. So do you think if the Labor Party get into government and they do the um, stitching up of the um, tax credit turning into a cash payment they would say, from this date, any new dividends? Or do you think they'll just not grandfather that? Well, they're not proposing to. Yeah. Um, It would be administratively very difficult and it would stop people trading. Mm. So if if you're holding some BHP shares and you think, well, actually, Rio looks like a better bet today, you now have a huge tax incentive to stay with BHP, which is probably... A, difficult to administer, and B, it creates economic distortions, mm. which I guess the CGT change did too, but it was probably administratively simpler because there were fewer transactions. Um, but, you know, no one was clamouring for it to be grandfathered when Costello was offering to give you cash back. That's right. So, you know, it's one of these things where no one ever whinges when tax goes down, but everyone whinges when tax goes up. Mm. And... This is the whole dilemma in designing a tax system because um, most government spending goes to people who don't pay tax. Mm. And most, so the people who pay the tax get less of the benefits. So it's a very difficult problem to solve. Mm. And you can't please all of the people all of the time. And there are already huge subsidies to so-called self-funded retirees, of which I hope to be one not yes. too far away. But, um, yeah, this is a transfer of wealth from working families to retirees. And whilst you know, some people clearly need to be looked after in their period post Employment, I think the pendulum has swung a little bit too far. Mm. And um, uh, Costello um, has been a big contributor to that. That The good times in the. But the same the can 2000s. be said with the Costello or the Howard slash Costello government um, 
with the middle class welfare that they dished out to buy votes, <laughs> effectively. Well, this is a form of middle class welfare. Yeah. Because the benefit goes to retirees with um, you know, substantial assets outside their... Um, their family home. Because if they don't have substantial assets, they'll be getting an age pension. Mm. So it's a system that needs rework, but it's very difficult to do. And Well, I think the Labor Party can get it across because Chris Bowen came out and was on the front page of the newspaper a couple of weeks ago. Um, hey, retirees, don't vote for us then. Mm. So that's... So it's a technical tax change, which, from a policy perspective, is a good thing. But clearly, on every tax policy, there's a human being at the other end of it, and this will create significant stories. So politically, it's a really difficult thing to do. Mm. Um, so in some ways, you have to admire their um, their courage. Mm. I a guess courageous pr- pr- decision minister. Well, I guess I'm all for it if they bloody put that money to something decent like infrastructure. Sure. So that's not a problem. That was a big rabbit hole, wasn't it? It was. Um, and I suspect it's a sort of an unpopular view. Mm. So I guess, yeah, I, I don't... I, I'm just thinking, like, would I vote... If there was a vote, should this happen, yes or no? What would I say? don't know. Yeah, this is, you know, are you going to favour your today self or your tomorrow self? Mm. Um, but, you know, on the subject of Paul Keating, I mean, he's famous for saying that uh, in any race you should always back self-interest because self-interest is the only one you know that's trying. And um, in this case, there is a very large self-interested constituency um, which is concentrated largely in relatively safe coalition seats. Mm. So maybe it's not going to affect the Labor vote all but, that much. But it's so funny. Like, at the end of the day, if you're a self-funded retiree, okay, um, number one, if they did turn off the cash back for one of a bit of term, mm-hmm. um, you would have to eat into your capital, potentially. Assume you were spending everything. Yeah, if you were That's spending everything. Yeah, yeah, yep. However... There is that safety net. If you if your assets decrease, you might be able to get onto the age pension Correct. anyway. So, I think it's so, more of so a... No one is going to have to worry about putting bread on the table. Exactly. So, I think while it is a bit of a slap to one's face, I don't know if there will be a, a net-net difference if you deplete your assets and have to jump on, um, you know, get a portion of age care... Uh, portion of the age pension and ultimately in most cases this will actually flow through to smaller estates mm. anyway that's a big rabbit hole um what i might do is i might put that rabbit hole in after the episode mm-hmm. as a bonus so a bonus bonus right. yeah um so i'll just say something so basically You're listening to My Millennial Money, and we've got a little bonus episode today. Following the episode we did earlier with Vince Scully and John about investing in shares, we ran out of time and we still had a heap of questions um, for that 
we still had a heap of questions that needed to be answered. So I've actually ditched John. I'm in the city with Vince. How are you, to Vince? You good? G'day, Glenn. So hey. is this a bonus ode? This is a bonus ode. Is that the term, is it? I think that's the technical term. Yeah. So I've uh, I've grabbed the portable gear. We're in Sydney and uh, we've got a, a coffee each. And that was a cool um, couple of episodes we did. Thanks for coming up fun. to the studio. It was fun. And the coffee was good up there too. Yes, it is. Better than this coffee. Really? Yeah, I actually don't like this one. We won't name names. Um, okay. In fact, I drove past the uh, the Glee coffee roastery on my way home. Oh, did you go up to the hospital? I did. You? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Beautiful building. Yeah, it's huge, isn't it? No, I meant the coffee roastery, not the hospital. Oh. <laughs> Uh, Vince wasn't going to the hospital to check in. He was doing a... Uh, a drive-by from a, Glee. A drive-by past Glee to visit Wyong Hospital because there's a bit of history there that he wanted to, to get a photo for somebody. So you're a nice guy, Vince. Mm, I do my bit. Mm. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.